Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Evolution of Medicine podcast. Uh, there has been a few weeks in between uh, this recording and the previous one, and I am happy to have as my guest today, Dr. Coffee Brown. And Coffee is a member of the Department of Emergency Medicine and one of my colleagues, uh, truly an amazing guy, and a little bit of background about Coffee. He did his medical education at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So he's another Arizonan, I guess, kind of like myself. I grew up in Tempe, Arizona. All right. <laughs> uh, before that, he was an art major, which is a, a major that I recommend for people going into medical school. Don't just do biology, for crying out loud. Everybody d does biology and biochemistry, and I think that's a mistake. Coffee went on to do his residency in emergency medicine here at the University of New Mexico. Again, he has that in common with myself, although I did it a, a few years later than, than he did. And he is now an award-winning teacher at the University of New Mexico EMS Academy and in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He is a barista. I've got a cup of coffee that he just made for me. Thank you. And he's a professional and perpetual student, and I would say one of the smartest guys that I know. So. Welcome, Coffee. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction. I've had uh, many conversations with uh, Joe Alcock over the years, and every one of them has been stimulating and interesting, and we kind of got to the point where we thought it might be interesting to record them and see if they are uh, enjoyable for others to listen to as well. Right. So we, we decided that one of the things <coughs> that we would talk about, uh, we're going to talk about the stress response. And this is... I guess apropos, uh, appropriate given that we just went through a very stressful uh, election season. Uh, now we're dealing with the aftermath, and I think that probably everybody's cortisol levels are a little bit elevated, don't you think? Yeah, I think <clears throat> you could say that whether we, whether you are happy or unhappy with the outcome of this election, the ghastly pre-election season of the last 15 months has kept everybody chronically hopped up on uh, adrenaline and cortisol, and that is exactly the problem with all of our modern lives. We're chronically hopped up on adrenaline and cortisol. Our brains are constantly stressed. That's really not what they're built for, and that's what brings it to your department, evolutionary medicine. Well, that's a good point, and I think it's one of these unanswered questions. Certainly in medicine, we think of stress as being a harmful component to modern life, and something that might predispose us to certain chronic diseases. There's a whole industry of stress relief and people uh, seeking ways of trying to reduce stress in their lives. And we think of stress as being uh, something which we can't avoid in some ways. And maybe that's different from how we evolved oh, 100,000 years ago. So I'm going to mention that here we're about to venture into uh, evolu evolutionary psychology which is otherwise known as the Journal of Irreproducible Results. That is, everything I'm about to say is untestable. Uh, it, it, we can't empirically prove what I'm about to say. So are you impugning the entire field of evolutionary psychology? I am not. I'm simply pointing out <laughs> a limitation. I think about it all the time. I use right. it. I think we need it. But I think we need to understand its limitations. And very, it's like philosophy. There's very little of it that's empirically testable. Therefore, arguments have to stand on their own merits. Let me give you an example in this context. We imagine, we, it's always been like this. 
Probably not. That's not what an evolutionary psychologist would say, and not how I understand it either as a biologist. Rather, um, if you think about a deer, like there's nothing worse you can be in the world than a deer, right? Everybody wants to eat you all the time. You're prey for everything in the world. Including deer ticks. Right? Including deer ticks. Big, small, doesn't matter. Everything's out to get you, right? Well, not exactly. If you look at the biology of deer and other prey animals, most of the time they're munching grass, they're drinking water, they're feeling okay. And then when they think they see a predator, when something startles them and they think they might be in danger, they freak out for a little while. They run away, they're hopped up as can be, and then they settle down and start grazing again when they believe the threat has gone by. But in our world, no threat ever actually reaches a resolution. We have bills to pay, we have tests to take, we have papers to turn in, we have bosses to please. Oh, we got evaluations coming up. Will I get that promotion? There is never a waking moment of our lives that we don't have obligations that are consequential. So how As much a consequence, of that is, we're never not stressed. How much of that is a consequence of us being social animals? A consequence of social animals, I would say, uh, but also a consequence of the complexity of our lives. Just the nature of the tasks we do, there is no end to them. Uh, in my, one of my first jobs, I was a metal worker. Uh, I was an iron worker, an iron monger. I twisted iron and bent it into ornate shapes and welded it and stuff. Was that in Tucson? Mm -hmm. uh, no, that was in uh, uh, S Southern California. Okay. But um, I had hired on as a welder, but I started out as a guy who cut stock for other, for other welders. I was the most junior guy in the shop, and I cut stock all day long. And I had literally, quite literally, tons of metal I had to carry around and cut and things like that. And I was trying to get on top of this pile of work so that they would let me weld. Well, when all the cutting is done, you can weld, right? Right. And, like three weeks in... I'm not making any headway because they're buying stock as fast as I'm cutting it. And I said to my boss, when is there an end to it? Because in my mind, I was in a transition from finish this job and then start the thing we hired you for. And he laughed and said, what do you mean to an end to it? We would be out of business if there were an end to it. That is the way our world works now. There's not an end to most of what we're doing. So stress is built into mo modern life. That is what I think. Mm -hmm. And I think you're probably right. Uh, the question is, how different is that phenomenon compared to the environment in which we evolved? It depends on what you mean by evolved. Humans have been agricultural for, depending on who you talk to, 10 to 30,000 years. And of okay. course it started at different times in different parts of the world. Once we became agricultural, we had to farm all day, store food for the winter, plan ahead, things like that. When we were hunter-gatherers, there was some planning and storing, but it appears that they spent most of their time either walking around looking for something to kill, or sitting around lying to each other and chipping flint napped, you know, spearheads and things. So there was a giant transition about that time. Now that's long enough for our brains to have changed and accommodated to some degree, but the pace of change, the degree with which things are getting piled onto us faster and faster, and our obligations are becoming more and more complex, I suspect has been faster than the evolution of our brains could keep up with. I don't think we had the same brains we did 20 or 30,000 years ago, but that is an untestable assumption on my part. I don't know if it's untestable. I'm certainly weak. There's no time machine, so this is a, uh, you know, a drawback of any kind of evolutionary hypothesis. We can't go back in time and test it. Um, but of course, evolutionary hypotheses are testable. We just have to be kind of creative about doing it. And certainly, modern-day hunter-gatherers have been a stand-in for... Uh, what we imagine, human, the conditions in which humans have evolved. You know, I remember from my cultural anthropology classes uh, when I was a student, 
being taught that hunter-gatherers led kind of a life of leisure in that they had some time that was devoted to hunting and gathering and doing other activities that were necessary for uh, you know, preservation of their lives and um, providing resources for their families. Uh, but there was a fair amount of, res uh, of leisure time. I I'm thinking of uh, films that I saw of the, the San now Bushman in South Africa, for instance. So the implication was that when we transitioned to agriculture and certainly with our modern lives, that our lives did get a lot more complicated and maybe a lot more unpleasant. I don't know if that's true. I, I'm not quite speculating more unpleasant. There are certainly great challenges to being a hunter-gatherer, mm -hmm. but a different kind mm -hmm. of stress. I feel like the, the, if you draw a line across time of stress, it was spikes for the hunter-gatherers, whereas it's constant for the agricultural people. I was just looking at a Dilbert cartoon <laughs> where the guy says to the pointy-haired boss, so what do you do with your um, high-performing workers? And he said, well, we pile more and more work on them until they become mediocre workers. And I think that to a large extent, that's what's happening now. When I was in uh, high school in the 70s, so that tells you how old I am, there was a book at that time that was a big hit, made a lot of splash, called Megatrends. And it looked at the idea that technology and culture are changing much, much faster than in the past and ever faster with every generation. Well, now three generations have gone by since then, well, two and a half. And we see that only faster. I was just reading um, in one of the medical journals, and I'm sorry I can't cite the source. Uh, well, we, can that, look, we can look it up and put it in the show notes uh, after the podcast. Okay, medical knowledge is doubling faster and faster. And it was a year for medical knowledge to double like a year ago. And most recently, the author was estimating 53 days. Well, that's actually faster even than I'm prepared to believe, though it might be true. I didn't see his evidence. But the idea, the trend, that there's this asymptotic increase in speed. Medical schools right now are looking at not having medical students memorize so much, but rather learn how to go look stuff up. We've given up on the idea that you can memorize what you need to even within a single specialty, or even for just your basic uh, medical education. The USMLE and even our emergency medicine boards do not require us to know dosages anymore. They require us to know how to look up dosages. Well, thank goodness. Yeah, because there's so much. So this pace of increasing complexity, whether or not we could have kept up with it over the last three millennia, is clearly, well, 30 millennia, I meant to say, is faster than we can keep up with it now. So... I think that raises some, some, a bunch of it, very interesting points. And one being that I think I, I would love to go back and I will try to do this and find out whether we have any idea about quality of life, stress levels among hunter-gatherers in, in the more recent literature. I have to confess I'm not uh, completely up to date on that literature. But my suspicion is that stress is part of being a human social animal and that we've always been striving to some degree, and that our social interactions are complicated, perhaps much more so now, because our social networks are so much bigger. And we do have these, um, the modern economy does place additional burdens on us, as you mentioned, that presumably didn't have in the distant past. But I think that there's always the, the risk of, uh, certainly the risk of being killed violently by another member of our species, that's gone down, uh, despite a lot of press attention to current levels of violence in places like Chicago. Uh, it's thought that in traditional societies, people killed each other at a far higher rate.
than we do now. That's got to be a stressful thing, worrying about being killed or being enslaved uh, or, you know, you know, raped. These are, these are parts of humanity that have a very long past and presumably imposed a great deal of stress on, on people in terms of you know, psych psychological stress. Steven Pinker has a nice TED talk on this, right. illustrated with graphs of the rate of interpersonal uh, homicide uh, over time, uh, going back millennia. So we're safer now. These are now. Based on historical records and like, yeah, the trend yeah. is way downward. Apparently, had we lived a thousand years ago, there would be like a 70% chance you and I would end our lives at the hands of another human. Now it's around 15% worldwide, if I remember his talk correctly. I also remember another um, documentary I saw about a wildlife biologist who went out and measured uh, large herbivores' cortisol levels hmm. at different times. And so this idea that, at least for that lifestyle, the lifestyle of an herbivore, not a hunter-gatherer, but a grazer. And higher cortisol being linked with increased stress? Cortisol is a marker for stress, was where this guy was going with it. And it did definitely show that it spikes and then flattens out again. In fact, he was addressing this very question. I should have thought of that when I was speaking earlier. But he was addressing this exact question and showing that, that difference in graph that I was speculating. So there is actually empirical evidence for that. It's not evolutionary biology evidence about humans, but it is a good empirical correlate. We've talked a fair amount about how we think things may have changed over human history. Perhaps we should talk a bit about the biology of stress. What does it do to us? I think this, this again, is something that, that we physicians perhaps don't pay enough attention to. Um, I'm just going to give you a, you know, a couple of examples of uh, in, in critical illness, um, things that, that show the complexity of the stress response. So one is that we know uh, that uh, stressful, certainly being in an intensive care unit or being hospitalized is stressful to patients. Uh, being in the emergency room, waiting for 12 hours to be seen is stressful to patients. And there's some evidence that, that those kinds of stresses, uh, simply being admitted, uh, interacting with the medical system, uh, does increase one's cortisol, uh, circulating catecholamines, and in some, at least in some results, may actually increase your risk of death. So the more circulating catecholamines correlate in, in some studies with an increased risk of death if you're admitted to an intensive care unit. In so, which direction do you imagine? The like, do the catecholamines put us in greater jeopardy, or when we're in greater jeopardy, we secrete more catecholamines? It could, it could be both, but part, part of what we're learning is that things that we do in terms of having uh, bright lights, lots of noise, uh, strangers that come in at uh, seemingly random times, uh, having to wait uh, interminably for things to happen, um, not having access to information, all these things are perceived as stressful to our patients. And they may, they may actually have some physiologic uh, correlates that we can see in terms of higher, higher blood pressures, heart rates, and you know, biochemically shown as higher uh, levels of circulating catecholamines and other things, so the fight or flight hormones, things like norepinephrine, and that those exposures may actually lead to increased death rates. Now you said something a moment ago that I think is really germane here. Um, the notion that this is really complex. So one of the things we know is that people who cannot mount a big jump up in stress hormones, by that I mean cortisol and adrenaline, die when yeah. a major physiologic insult occurs. There's this whole idea of adrenal insufficiency. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who have a degree of adrenal insufficiency because they've been on steroids for a long time 
or because many of us are older now than would have been statistically common in the past, uh, or because they've already been taxed by other chronic illness. There are, there's a large population of people out there who cannot mount this stress response, and they will die without it. We have to give them a big burst of stress dose steroids. Exactly. So there's this paradox that we know. There's a line of reasoning and logic that suggests that we are stressing our patients out and potentially killing them by giving them exogenous catecholamines, for instance, when, when they get admitted to the intensive care unit. And Mervyn Singer has done work uh, suggesting that we should be giving people beta blockers as opposed to catecholamines when they are, uh, have critical illness. I so that, that argues against uh, this I, idea that the stress hormones are good for us. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, there are people that can't mount a stress response and they also have a higher risk of death. So all these things suggest to me two things. One is that this is an evolved system and the capacity to produce cortisol and to uh, marshal up resources to fight infections and deal with uh, challenges, that's adaptive to us. And yet it carries, there's a trade-off involved. And anytime that, that we are devoting all of our resources to, towards fight or flight uh, or meeting the challenge, that decreases our capacity to deal with um, you know, other demands on our bodies. And sometimes that can lead to death. So I, I think that I don't see a paradox there, but rather it points out, and, and I, as I model it, as I understand stress, I would say that at the psychological level, the cultural level, and the physiologic level, we need to really differentiate between sustained stress and acute stress. They're very, very different from each other. So if you can't mount that stress dose response at the time of your physiologic insult, you get to find out if there's an afterlife. Hmm. But if you mount that stress response and then can't de-escalate it after the acute event, then you get to find out if there's an afterlife. So I think there is a role for blunting the stress response, but I wouldn't do it as they come into the emergency room. There, I'm going to well, get that's what, that's what, cortisol. That's what Mervyn Singer, though, was suggesting. So that I would need to learn more about. You're ahead of me on that curve. Also, recall that he's addressing the catecholamine response, right. whereas I'm addressing the uh, cortisol response. And so it may be that one part of that acute response is beneficial at the same moment that another is harmful. Um, that's a, I would like to watch that research and see how that pans out. Right. So that's an interesting... But this is exactly what happens with complex systems, where you get these confusing, seemingly contradictory results. And it also points to the fact that we can't take a single laboratory study or a petri dish finding and then translate that to human biology in a complex system like uh, you know, our hospitalized patients here at the University of New Mexico. And one thing I wanted to bring up um, with regard to that is, and I'll get back to our catecholamines. So catecholamines include things like epinephrine and norepinephrine, or as on the other side of the pond, they might say adrenaline or noradrenaline. Uh, these are synonyms. And In this country, adrenaline and noradrenaline are trademarked. That's why we is that use right? epinephrine and norepinephrine here. I didn't know that. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> managed to copyright that a while back. So it's been shown that if you take a dish of, say, gram-negative bacteria and you expose those bacteria uh, in a, you know, certain growth media to catecholamines, that growth increases. So this is work done uh, by Mark Light and some of his colleagues. And we'll link to some of this work. But it's, it shows that uh, many pathogens seem to grow better and produce virulence factors uh, in response to norepinephrine. There's another worker, uh, Vanessa Sporandio, who has shown that many bacteria, including things like 
um, Staphylococcus aureus, uh, E. coli, have adrenal receptors on them. So they're actually, they're, they have quorum sensing uh, regulat regulatory gene expression that controls things like growth and virulence factor production that is sensitive to the amount of uh, adrenaline or um, epinephrine in their, in, the, in their local environment. So we can interpret this to say that bacteria sense the stressed state of their host and they will regulate their growth and virulence depending on how stressed you are. So in other words, if, they, if, they, if a bacteria sees that you're a sinking ship, you know, that you're really sick and you're critically ill, it might be in uh, a bacterium's best interest to at that point change strategies and become invasive um, and possibly contribute to your demise. Um, that's, that's part of the argument here is that uh, bacteria might benefit by reproducing and becoming more virulent if you are particularly stressed. They see a moment of opportunity like when you stutter on 60 minutes. Right. Um, well, that raises a couple of... So from a co-evolution standpoint, which I know is one of your interests, it may well be that bacteria look for evidence that the body is stressed and say, great, let's go hog wild and breed more. Although, if you think about it, that kills their hosts and ends their colonization. Well, the whole like idea is that this, is, this is a conditional strategy. Under certain circumstances, it may be best for the uh, potential pathogen to remain non-pathogenic and, and not activate the virulence program. But under other circumstances, it'd be advantageous for the microbe to uh, activate virulence and damage the host more than it would uh, in, in the previous condition. Well, the more the bacteria we spread in the host, the more they can then disseminate beyond the host. So these are, yeah, these are conditional strategies, and it's been recognized over the last couple of decades that bacteria do behave socially under some circumstances, and they do have these quorum-sensing mechanisms that allow them to pay attention to their environment and to, to, to show some phenotypic plasticity. It raises another evolutionary uh, point, so I'm going to tangent mm -hmm. for just a moment. Sure. You may well have had a podcast on this, forgive me if you have. People are often surprised, like, why would bacteria have receptors for epinephrine? Why in the world would the soybean plant produce estrogen? Right. But how could it be that the, the yew tree has a bark that produces a, uh, you know, one of the best treatments for breast cancer so far? That's astonishing. No, it's not astonishing at all. It makes perfect sense if you understand two things. One is that nature recycles molecules a lot. Most of the, um, in fact, all of the steroid hormones in our body are variations on cholesterol. So we, we take cholesterol, we tweak it a little bit, like making a designer drug, and oh, now it's testosterone. Oh, now it's estrogen. It's basically the same molecule with just little tiny tweaks all over it that we use to repurpose it for other things. This goes far back. So species that are distant in our evolutionary history have many of the same molecules in them that we do now, though they may have been using them differently at that time. So soybean is not going to grow breasts and menstruate once a month, but it still has some uh, regulatory function that it's been using estrogen for because we share this common ancestor that goes all the way back to cholesterol. And we, uh, we animals must find it useful to use the very same signaling molecule that the plant does. Well, because it's easier than reinventing a new molecule. I, I wonder scratch. about that. So that would that would suggest there's some some inertia in terms of the you know an organism's ability to to improvise and come up with new um, new molecules. It so, is sometimes called the principle of parsimony, uh, for exactly that reason. Occam's razor. Um, well, Occam's razor. Another tangent. Sorry. <laughs> what, what Occam said was it's best not to multiply complexities when searching for a solution. But that's a heuristic, not an algorithm. He didn't mean the answer is always the simplest one. People always translate him that way. What he meant was, start with the easiest one to test and work your way up to the more 
uh, complex ones. And it does turn out that as a good betting odds, the, the simpler answer is more often correct than the more complex answer. But sometimes there really are three or four things going on that you have to ultimately wind up accounting for. So Occam's razor is not an algorithm, but a heuristic, and it's, it's important to outline it in that way. There was something else I was going to say about the, uh, the evolution. Well, that, that reminds me that probably things like norepinephrine, epinephrine, serotonin, they probably evolved in bacteria, these single-celled organisms, first. In other words, they were invented perhaps many millions, exactly. if not a billion exactly. years ago, by prokaryotes. Yep. And then we've co-opted them yep. along those lines. So I don't, I mean, listeners of the podcast probably may remember that uh, I've mentioned that you know, bacteria produce neurochemicals and neuropeptides that are identical to mammalian ones. So they actually produce norepinephrine. They actually produce serotonin. They produce and manufacture dopamine. They make GABA. They make histamine, of course. We know this from uh, people that have allergic diseases. So remarkably, they manufacture and generate the same neuropeptides that we use in our own body signaling. And they also make peptide hormones that, that also affect us in, 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 our, in our physiology. So remarkable. And it's also remarkable that, that we would kind of... So if you think about maybe... Maybe it's easier just to use the same molecule that a bacterium makes in our own body system, but that raises the, the potential for hacking, that microbes might manipulate our, our, our systems, and also that it raises the possibility um, that there can be various conflicts of interest in the use of these signaling molecules. So that may manifest as um, you know, microbes uh, interfering with our signaling systems that might benefit their fitness at the expense of ours. And we know that we do, by the way, when we get to talking about microbiomes, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if that's today, but when we get to that, we see that we see some of that manifested. So a little teaser there for you, spoiler alert. The other thing I was going to say about this, um, this breadth of uh, the same uh, molecules showing up in us and plants and all over the place, why would a yew tree grow a molecule that would treat breast cancer? It's actually not surprising at all because they face the same problems we do, which is plants get cancer. Plants deal with extremes of uh, temperatures. Plants deal with dehydration. They deal with bacteria and invasive species and parasites. So we just to every you species briefly, on Earth. Okay. We, I, I, in my evolutionary medicine class yesterday, we talked about the evolution of cancer, and we brought up uh, a paper, Cancer Across Life, that surveys this exactly idea that. of kind of un uncontrolled cell proliferation that exists in just about every domain of life. And this is work done by Athena Actippus, Carlo Maley. Uh, Amy Body and, and colleagues. Um, very interesting. So all of the problems that all life forms have to face in terms of maintaining homeostasis are faced by all life forms. We have to solve basically the same biologic problems as every other species. But we all have evolved different solutions to these same problems, which means that every single species is a library of responses to everything bad that can happen to us. And every time a species goes extinct, we have burnt the Library of Alexandria. We have burnt thousands of unexplored solutions to our own biological problems. Very true, and also depressing. Depressing, but a damn good reason to stop wiping out other species. That's for sure. Even if only from a human selfish standpoint, they all of them hold libraries of cures for us that we haven't barely begun to look at. So we started out, so 
getting back to the biology then of um, stress response, we talked about how it can help us, how it can harm us. It is also, there's a large body of literature regarding the acute stress response, which is uh, called the adaptation response, and the general adaptation syndrome, which sounds good but is bad. It's the long-term stress response. Um, these are diagrams I would encourage listeners to look up if they haven't seen them already. Essentially, they show that short-term, like if, a, if, if Joe attacks me right now, like he did, you know, the other day, <laughs> right, and I have to defend myself, Adrenaline and cortisol are my friend. I'll shut down peripherally. If he slashes me with a knife, I won't bleed as much. I won't feel very much pain. <clears throat> I won't feel any fear or fatigue while I'm defending myself. Joe, by the way, is a head taller than me. Uh, on the other hand, if I stay in that mode very long, my body will age prematurely. I mean literally age prematurely. I'll have accelerated atherosclerosis, um, literally, my hair will gray earlier than it would have otherwise, things like that. It really is true that stress ages your body faster than non-stress. This is closely related to a thing called the metabolic syndrome, which is also part of the American lifestyle. Can I jump in here a little bit? Yeah. So, so basically, the stress response is a mediator of uh, changed resource allocation in your body. So you're allocating resources towards the fight or flight you know, behavioral system, uh, allocating resources towards the immune system uh, at the cost of things like maintenance and, maintenance and repair that may uh, lead to premature aging, for instance, and other priorities of the body. So we're, it's a short-term prioritization of, of how your body uses resources and behaves, and it has costs that are important for us to consider. Exactly. So, yeah. so when you're stressed, for instance, maybe chronic stress, we find that it's harder for people to remember things. So the hippocampus doesn't function as well. It's harder to lay down memory uh, if you're under chronic stress. Maybe that your immune system, um, you know, may again under short-term stress function better, uh, but cognition and memory and brain activity is going to suffer. Well, and that points out another difference too. The stress response, as we understand it, we call it the fight or flight response is evolved for situations where we have to fight or flee. Besides the fact that our stressors are not short time limited events anymore, there's also the fact that none of the things that stress me normally are fight or flight events. It is true that a mugger may jump me, Joe may freak out and attack me, but most of the things that stress me out, there is no opportunity to fight them or run away from them. So the fight or flight response is not appropriate to the kind of stress I have. Here I'm separating it out from the time difference, the chronicity difference. It's a different character of problem. And adrenaline and cortisol will not help me solve the problem of how do I learn this much before finals week? How do I get that much done before my next uh, job evaluation and so on? Well, that's true. Um, and that brings me to if we bring it back to uh, the internal environment and the, the microbial environment, um, I had a paper published in the Quarterly Review of Biology uh, with Ed Legrand, uh, and we postulated that stress is good for us when we're trying to combat certain kinds of uh, invading pathogens and or even you know, cancer cells, that some degree of stress is, it helps us in that, in that domain. And the, the whole idea, we call this immune brinksmanship, that our immune system uh, creates an internal environment 
uh, which is stressful, not, to, not only to our own cells, but also to uh, the potentially invade, invading cells. And the whole reason why this immune gamble pays off for us most of the time is that the invaders or the, or the neoplastic cells are more susceptible to the stress than it is the rest of us. So we, we actually subject ourselves to stress uh, intentionally in terms of the way that our, our bodies are designed. So you mentioned metabolic syndrome. So um, you know, Ed Legrand uh, has argued that high blood sugar, among other things, uh, provides an osmotic stress and is, can be potentially harmful to invading pathogens. Decreased pH does, it does the very, very the same, same thing, time. although it does, so there's going to be a trade-off there. So decreased pH, uh, the sequestration of um, micronutrients like iron and zinc, these are going to stress our own cells, but they'll stress the invader cells more. So I don't think we've worked out all the details in this idea, but it's an it's a adjunct, I think, to the things that we've been describing here. A common example of that would be fever, which makes us uncomfortable but is fatal to many microbes. That's why we spike a fever. And fever is the best example of that. Yeah. So, yeah, excellent. Now, memory. You mentioned memory earlier and the way that stress interferes with the function of the hippocampus. This has actually led to a lot of problems in education, which is my particular passion. Yours is evolution, mine's education. Do you think you know. we stress out our students too much? Well, not that exactly. It, the answer may well be yes, and it, and it would be nice to know how to measure that as we go along. Mm -hmm. But all of us know that a single very bad negative experience, you know, you pet a Rottweiler and you lose a hand, you're probably not going to pet the next Rottweiler. You, that really fixes a memory in your head. But what humanity has overgeneralized forever is that, oh, it must make sense then to hit people with a stick every time you want them to learn something. There's a difference between what'll work one time for one acute, fix this memory, don't ever forget this important thing. It doesn't follow, it turns out, that you can chronically beat people with a stick and get them to learn large amounts of stuff. For that, you need to keep them in an optimal state of stress, which is actually a rather pleasant state. The optimal state of stress, most of us rather like. It's a sense of engagement, involvement, anticipation. but hitting people with a stick actually impairs their ability to learn calculus. So you want your calculus students interested, challenged by the upcoming test, but not terrified to get maximum uh, learning to happen. And I think this is a, something that we, we struggle with in, in medical education. The whole idea of sub subjecting trainees to long work hours. Um, I'm sure you can remember back from when you were a trainee and a resident uh, being on call and having, you know, being stressed and having events happen to you that you found, um, you know, that made a big impact on you. So there's a trade-off between these kind of stressful, uh, high-impact events that burn memories into your brain and the more long-term stress that prevents that from happening. Well, in my day, when men were men and giants walked the earth, if you didn't look chronically exhausted and terrified, you got marked down as a lazy student. Yeah, no, I, I believe it. Uh, things were much softer when I trained. Well, I was going to say things have improved drastically, actually. And this school, by the way, UNM, I'm going to throw in some props from our, for our residency program here. This school is one of the leaders in helping to make medicine more humane. And I believe one of the benefits of making medical education not less rigorous, but less brutal, is that we graduate doctors that are less brutal. I think we actually graduate kinder doctors than the system I, I came up through. Yeah, but e even when I trained, um, you know, we had students who uh, became deeply depressed, uh, even suicidal. Suicide, yeah. Um, so these things, and I, I know you know, we people that we've trained with have, have uh, committed suicide. 
Um, so there's, there's a big problem, certainly in the medical profession, of not only optimizing education and doing it in a way that's not going to burn people out, uh, but, but really pr promoting wellness uh, and keeping people from um, harming themselves. So we've talked uh, some about what we think might be the evolutionary history of stress, some of the, a little bit about the pathology of stress. I want to pitch a little bit for stress. All Today's right. episode is brought to you by stress. Hello, stress. And that is, yeah, we love to go to a, a, like on a roller coaster and scare ourselves or go rock climbing or kickboxing or surfing, you know. We, we love to go to places where we're scared enough to think something might happen to us, but we don't really think something will happen to us. People love to go and gamble. In fact, gambling can become an addiction, obviously. Then we're back into pathology. But the point is, a certain amount of stress engages us with life in a way that very few other things do. Although I hope we can circle the conversation back around to flow as both an alternative to and a treatment for stress. Um, well, let's hear about it. What's, what's your uh, prescription? Okay. So flow is a word that was coined by a guy named uh, Chiksamahari. And you can look up, I have read his book and I've listened to several of his lectures uh, on video as well. I would say that the Wikipedia article largely tells you everything you need to know about the concept of flow. Basically, when you're doing, maybe you do needlepoint, or you, you tie fish, fishing flies, or you uh, play the violin, or, or maybe you play chess by mail, there's something that you do that is so absorbing to you that you look up at the clock and you go, four hours, that felt like 20 minutes. You know what? You had almost no awareness during those four hours. You're in this free-floating, timeless space with no awareness of self. Your mind is completely engaged by the task. This, I believe, is actually what the Buddha meant by no mind, by the obliteration of ego. I don't think he meant we lose the sense of who we are in the world. When he picked up food, he put it in his mouth, not some random mouth. Right. He knew who he was as an individual. But this sense that we stop thinking about ourselves and fussing about ourselves and worrying about ourselves and focus wholly on the task. Now, for years, for me, that was art and sculpture. But at some point, I realized that if I know how to do it there, I know how to do it. Now, I'm in a flow state when I'm doing dishes or the laundry or training the dog. When I took my boards for emergency medicine, you know, I, I worried and, and, and about things and fussed as I prepared. Uh oh, I'm not good at this stack of cards. I'm better at that stack of cards and so on. And I worked on to short my weaknesses. But on the two days of testing that we did, it was like going away to a Zen retreat for me. I just focused 100% on every question. When the weekend was over, I was like, really, already? I felt refreshed and wonderful at the end of my board testing because I it was a total flow state for me throughout that period. I, I achieved no flow during my uh, board research. And most people don't, but that is exactly my point. What is classically one of the most stressful weekends for us in our entire career for me, was a wonderful weekend. Don't get me wrong. I put a lot of effort in leading up to that weekend. But on, at the time of the test, I just focused on the questions. I disappeared from myself. And when the weekend was over, it was like, really? Already? It was a wonderful weekend. I'm not exaggerating. Well, that's what I mean by uh, flow state as an antidote to stress. When we, One of the things that stresses us is I'm working on the Ferguson Report. Oh, but I've got this patient in room 14, and oh my gosh, my wife just called and told me the plumbing blew up at the house. And what about my car? Did I remember to put gas in it? So you're describing the typical emergency medicine shift. I can't do all those things at once. 
what I have done for a long time now is that when I'm in room 14, room 12 doesn't exist for me, just room 14. When I'm with somebody doing an interview, there are no other issues on my mind except that interview. Now when I come out, I have to look at the whole pile and say, okay, which thing do I work on next? So it's not like I can escape it forever. I have to look at the whole pile and do some prioritizing. But once I've picked the next thing I'm going to work on, all of my attention is on that one next thing. I know I'm not going to do anything about the exploded pipe until I get home. My wife's just going to have to manage the plumber until I get there, right? When I get home, that will be my priority, and I won't think about room 14 anymore. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I think that this is something that I certainly struggle with. Uh, but you know, to your point, um, it's been argued that uh, stress, stress and anxiety are the root of procrastination. So people don't engage in tasks that would otherwise be useful to them because of you know, stressing about it and being anxious about it. So what you're describing is ways to get over procrastination. Yeah, so I won't lie, I've been caught by that too. I sometimes look at a pile of things I have to do and they're just, I don't know where to start and it stops me. I, I go and do something else that's more pleasurable to me for a little while. Yeah. I showed my wife my to-do list a couple of days ago. Let's take a look. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. And she began crying. All right. It's, it's just so for, it's for, uh, for, to for listeners, um, it goes on for pages. <laughs> it's, it's something else. But when I focus on one thing at a time, it doesn't stress me. But when I look at the whole thing at once, it does. And I've actually gotten in the habit so is that uh, an for argument a few against years of to-do lists. People. No. If you, you don't do make the, the list, you never get stressed out about it? So I will now share with you my recipe for people who can't sleep at night because they're worrying. Okay, and, and to that point, um, I woke up at 2.30 last night, as I think probably many people did. So certain things can swamp out my recipe. I also suffered last night, and much more so this morning. But generally speaking, I call it worrying like a professional instead of worrying like an amateur. You read advice that says, don't think about your to-do list when you're trying to go to sleep at night. Don't think about chores. Think about a nice beach or something. Well, of course you're going to think about the things you have to do tomorrow. So you think about, you know, I've got to put gas in the car and I've got to fix that broken window pane and, and I think I'll fix a bro broken relationship tomorrow while I'm at it and all these things, right? But the problem is you make a plan, an elaborate plan. Here's what I'll wear tomorrow. Here's what I'll take to work tomorrow, all these things. And then you start over because you're afraid you won't remember it. And you're correct because when you're in the hypnagogic state, Falling asleep, your brain doesn't form memories. This, listen, I, you're preaching to the choir here because this, this happens to me. I'll wake up and I'll say, okay, I need to do all these things and I'll make a list of my of priorities. And almost every single time I'll wake up in the morning and I can't remember the, like, the top three things that I was thinking and about. That's why you night. can't fall asleep. You're deathly afraid you're going to forget the plan. You just went to all that work of making. Yeah. So here's how you worry like a professional instead of like an amateur. I don't tell people not to do that. Of course we're going to do that. But... Have a pen and paper next to the bed and write down each of those things in the moment and then stop thinking about them. I've decided what I'm going to put in my briefcase in the morning. Stop thinking about the briefcase unless you get a new idea. You know, I've decided what I'm going to do to mend a, a damaged relationship tomorrow, how I'm going to approach the person. Stop thinking about it. You've made the plan. And when you've you know, when you run out of things that you have to worry about, you don't go back and recycle. You're correct that you won't remember any of this, but you've got it written down. You're safe now. You're okay. <laughs> now you can snuggle up to your pillow, pull up your banky around you, and fall asleep. And this is how you worry like a professional instead of like an amateur. The 
advice that people get to get stress out of their lives is absurd advice. If there were no stress in your life, it would mean that nothing you do has any meaning, which is the most stressful thing that could possibly happen to you. Right. The reason we have stress is that our lives matter, and that can be translated as, we have purpose, we have meaning, I'm happy. The things that I worry about in my life are the things that give structure and purpose to my day. But we don't want to worry like amateurs. We want to worry professionally about one thing at a time and then move on. I think that's great advice coffee and I think that you know I, I probably on the on the anxiety spectrum I, I think I, I am on the higher end probably than the average person and I've, I've, I've argued that our my job as an emergency physician is to be a professional warrior in other words people come in yes. and they've got all kinds of concerns they may think that they have cancer or that they're having a heart attack and sometimes they do uh, but the majority of times people don't have those life-threatening problems and that's that's good and it's my job then to reassure them but during the time when I'm working them up I assume the worst I think that they have the cancer or the heart attack or the stroke just like they do and so then they can transfer that worry onto me uh, and then I can put my knowledge and decision-making to bear and then hopefully come to a res you know, resolve some of that worry for many of our patients that kind of worrying, I think, is appropriate. And by the way, for those of you who do not have the pleasure of knowing Dr. Alcock, he is a consummate gentleman. He treats everybody well. I've never seen him impatient or harried or flustered looking. And so while you may feel that internally, so you, you don't manifest it wife. externally uh, by being a jerk to anybody around you or by being impatient with people. And so that's great. That said, try this. We'll try focusing on one thing at a time. And also, I'm not usually bothered by the fact that there are problems in the world. I see everything all the time as having both opportunities and threats as part of their makeup. Everything. When I drive, I know I could get hit, but I also know it's a lot faster than walking. You know, When I take care of a patient, I know that I could make a mistake, but I plan for mistakes, and I have a series of solutions floating around in my head in case something goes wrong with my treatment plan, things like that. So. Being comfortable with the idea that everything in the world is, is a mixture, a matrix of threat and opportunity, and that if you're aware of that and looking for it, you can maximize your opportunities and minimize your threats, it seems less stressful to me that way. And it, listen, it would be really fascinating to test some of the ideas that you're describing and find out whether adopting some of these cognitive techniques actually do reduce cortisol and do improve memory. I suspect that they do. But it'd be, it'd be very interesting well, to find out. I'm totally out. up for doing a study on that. Yeah. In fact, uh, emergency medicine residents would be a great group to do it on. They would be. We have an amazing group of residents uh, that our listeners should know. Um, some of the most brightest and uh, most compassionate, uh, well-accomplished people that I've had the pleasure to meet. The only downside is they're pretty hard to freak out. Maybe we should go for the medical That's, students. Okay, medical students. Good idea. Yeah, They're easier to scare. <laughs> great. And I will, you know, I think that you've given... Uh, myself and some of our listeners, maybe some, some food for thought and uh, ways that we can look at uh, stress reduction in terms of our, the psychological stress that we, that's part of modern life. Um, I, I, have to, I have to bring it back to the election that uh, happened yesterday for our listeners. And I was talking to Coffee earlier about uh, there's another podcast that I recommend. It's called The United States of Anxiety. Uh, it's by WNYC, and it explains some of the thinking behind our politics and some of the, uh, 
the most recent episode that came out before the election talked about some biochemical uh, correlates of um, voter behavior. And one of the most remarkable findings was that uh, Trump voters tended to have higher cortisol than did uh, you know, Democratic voters. So there was, there was definitely a, uh, a correlation between having higher stress levels and voting uh, for Donald Trump. And so it makes me wonder if, he, if, the, if Trump sort of hacked the entire electorate by whipping us up into a state of fear and distress. Oh, he totally and, did. Fear mongers have done that forever. Yeah, so I think that, that's really part of it. And here's this, this bio, biological correlate. So if, if, if we as, a, you know, as, as the American people have been listening to your advice, trying to maintain flow, um, focusing on one task at a time, and not paying so much attention to this free-floating anxiety and existential dread, uh, maybe the election would have turned out a little bit differently. Well, I saw a headline this morning that said that uh, Donald Trump won the election by accusing Hillary of everything he does. Um, well, he certainly inoculated it's, himself it's, when he, when he felt, felt like he was under threat to be uh, uh, pinned with a certain charge, he would turn around and, um, and that, was, that was one of the debates where, uh, <laughs> where Clinton accused him of being a, pu a puppet of Putin and Donald Trump responded by saying, no, you're the puppet. So that's a you know, perfect example of that. Yeah, we needed a prophylaxis against Putin's pet puppet, I would say. <laughs> um, it's not surprising to me that uh, Trump would do what demagogues have always done. That's a, those are time-tested techniques. What saddens me is that it worked. Uh, what saddens me is what it says about us, the American people. Not, I mean, it's all too easy to blame Trump, but there will always be Trumps in the world. What we have done to ourselves is a lot less forgivable. I don't think it's a one-off either, and um, I agree with you that it's uh, that is cause for concern. Uh, I want to bring in to this part of the conversation. There's work that's been done by Randy Thornhill on the main campus in biology, uh, and he has this parasite stress theory of politics. And so the basic idea is that people who are exposed to more parasites uh, or more infections tend to have a uh, increased immune response, uh, tend to psychologically exhibit that as disgust, and, and actually being disgusted by things is, is thought to be the behavioral arm of the immune system. And, and there's more in-group, out-group kinds of thinking, um, more xenophobia that accompanies this parasite stress. And so he relates everything to such microbes or, or parasites. Um, and perhaps that explains why kind of, uh, northern populations that are subjected to fewer infections, we can think of Scandinavia, tend to be more liberal, and whereas um, the Middle East and more equatorial areas in which there is more infectious disease, etc., um, more parasitism, tend to have more reactionary, xenophobic kinds of politics. So that's, that's the basic argument. And I have to say that I'm skeptical of the general thesis um, it certainly is a correlational argument, um, not causation, although you can um, expose people to images of parasites uh, or wounds, and some people, they've shown that, that actually will shift one's behavior more towards the conservative end of the spectrum. And this fits in, I think, with the work uh, that was described in the podcast, The United States of Anxiety, in which they found that cortisol levels predicted uh, voting behavior. Um, so it makes me wonder if the American people is sick in a way. I mean, literally, biologically sick. What do you think? The correlation with that. Well, I think that, that that. So apparently, sociologists have known for a while 
that countries nearer the equator have more political instability than countries further from the equator. Right. There appears to be some sort of sociocultural benefit of living in cooler climates. Yeah. I have not yet heard a good thorough explanation for why that might be so, but the correlation is pretty consistent yeah. over time. And I'm being I'm being provocative here. I don't I don't mean to say that every single uh, voter, conservative voter, is literally ill. But these you know, these ideas they do make you wonder uh, in terms of sort of the broad strokes, in terms of uh, whether on a population level that may have uh, impacts that actually affect our behavior. Um, and with regard to that, I would say that uh, one of the parasites that I'm interested in is the microbiome. And we have the microbiome is made up of both microbes that, that tend towards the parasitic end of the spectrum of, and others that are more, more mutualists. And it's thought that uh, with modern life and processed foods and increased obesity rates, that one of the, one of the findings is that we have a dysbiosis or a uh, abnormal change um, in terms of the community of, our, of the microbes in our guts, one which is less healthy than, uh, than existed in the past. Uh, one which is um, linked with decreased diversity and, and loss of some potentially beneficial microbes in our guts. So the basic argument in terms of people that study the, the human microbiota with relation to obesity is that uh, we see an increasing dysbiosis or unhealthy community. Uh, we see a decreased biodiversity of the microbiome, just like we see, we see in ecology elsewhere on the globe. And that these, these effects are bad for human health. They manifest as things like obesity and metabolic syndrome. Um, so I'm wondering, I don't know if anybody's done this study, looking at, uh, if you look at one's waistline and if that predicts voting behavior. I'd be very curious to know about that. That is an interesting question. From, from, from a socioeconomic perspective, we do know that uh, if it truly is that uh, working class voters are voting more for Trump, I want, we do know that, that uh, obesity is a bigger problem for patients on the lower socioeconomic end of the spectrum. I wonder, I just, you know, it's one of these things that just occurred to me this morning. So you could find this. that correlation, but it could be due to the confounding factor of socioeconomic status. And stress there, plays into this too. Well, so studies have previously looked at the correlation between stress and obesity. That one is known. Right. That one's not speculative anymore. Now, George Lakoff, so I'm still on the um, relationship between biology and politics for a moment, All since right. we've segued there. Um, George Lakoff is a neurocognitive scientist who published a book, well, I think it would go back to the late 70s, called Don't, Look at an, Don't Think of an Elephant. But he has continued to study the neurobiology uh, of liberals and conservatives, is how he divides the political spectrum. And I should point out that the word conservative doesn't mean the same thing all the time. There's post-Newt Gingrich conservatives and pre-Newt Gingrich conservatives, and they're very different animals, uh, for example. But what he seems to have found, I'm summarizing and not doing his work justice, so if this interests anyone, they should go and read George Lakoff. But as I would summarize it, all of us are constantly torn between opportunity and risk. Mmm, that's a delicious-looking banana. Oh, but if I climb up for it, I might fall and hurt myself. Ooh, that's a wonderful looking drink of water. Ooh, but if I bend my head down to it, a lion might get me. Oh, that's a great looking car. I'd love to drive that. Oh, but if I spend money on it, what will I have left for retirement? And so on. So we're always torn between opportunity and threat. And personalities that see the threat more than the opportunity tend to vote conservative. Personalities that see opportunity more than threat 
tend to vote liberal. And it makes sense in that model that we terrify each other. If I'm thinking, ooh, look, a treasure, let's go after it, and the uh, conservative is going, no, you have to sail through pirate waters to get to that treasure, he's terrified that I'm going to take the boat through pirate water. On the other hand, he's going, I'm afraid of pirates, and I'm afraid of dark nights, and I'm afraid of sharks, and I'm afraid of water, and I'm afraid of surf, and I'm like, dude, are we ever going to do anything fun? Right? So if you're terrified of everything, you never have any opportunity. But if you chase every opportunity, it's not long before one of them chops your head off. So some kind of balance is needed there, but balance is not part of our political dialogue. That's true. And I think that you know the, the recent political events are going to be dissected in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, and really, I hesitate to even talk about it, but it's hard not to, given the immense consequences of uh, the election yesterday. If you're listening to this somewhere near November 9th, 2016, you're going, oh, that's just partisan politics. But if you're listening to this more than two years out, you're going, oh, I get it. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah. All right. So microbiomes, is that where you wanted to go next? Well, we can talk a little bit about microbiomes. Sure. So I am absolutely fascinated by this new branch of science, something you know a ton about and I know very little about. You were talking, for example, about the relationship between microbiomes associated with obesity and uh, with stress. Might it be, if we've co-evolved, as you've talked to me about before, with our microbiomes, that it would make sense that when we're stressed and therefore we think we may be facing hard times, we would favor those microbiomes that cause us to store more fat. In other words, maybe it's not an odd coincidence that some microbiomes cause us to store fat. Maybe people who are stressed create a gut condition that favors those microbiomes because that in turn symbiotically favors them with more fat storage. So I, I, I think it's a provocative idea. I think it's probably wrong. Okay. And I think and the reason why I think it's wrong is that I don't think, you know, there is no constraint on us in terms of if you imagine if you imagined a human being without a microbiome and you imagine the possibilities of the different different trajectories that evolution might take us. And then you ask yourself, well, what are the kinds of uh, functions or features of our physiology that we might outsource to another organism? We don't need a microbe to tell us how to deposit fat. In other words, we're perfectly capable of... No, but we might be glad for the, um, not the leptin, it's not leptin, it's the other uh, hormone that they produce. We might be glad to have an ex exogenous source of the hormone that causes us to do that. It's our own hormone. But, again, but again, again, why why outsource those things? I think that the potential for cheating in terms of a microbe behaving in a asocial manner and one that, that is more parasitic rather than mutualistic, the risks of that would outweigh any benefit of outsourcing a lot of these Function. So I think that when people talk about the functional microbiome or the fact that it's the microbiome is necessary for the normal, quote-unquote, uh, normal development of our immune system or our metabolism, and, and part, of, part of that is kind of missing the boat, that evolution would not set us up to be so vulnerable to microbial hacking or cheating in that regard. So in that way, you might think of the microbiome as being kind of like a cancer. So I'd like to stress that much as I enjoyed spinning out that potential story of how things might work, that's just what I was doing, playing with the idea of how things might work. There's not a shred of evidence for that, and that's partly why I was asking. But the question. other piece of it yeah. is that to the extent that microbes do 
impact obesity. The best evidence for that is that microbes impact visceral obesity. And if you want to just store energy as fat, there's no reason why you should have it packing your intestines and be in your, uh, in your abdominal cavity. There's other places where you can put fat. You can put it on your hips, your buttocks, subcutaneous fat, and elsewhere. And in fact, that's the, the fat when we observe it as physicians and our patients, we know that subcutaneous fat is the healthier place for fat to be as opposed to visceral fat. Now that's interesting because where we put fat is an engineering problem. If you're going to like go Beverly Hillbillies, move across the country and put all your stuff on your car, you think about how you distribute it on the car. Well, if we put it around our hips, it makes more sense if we're doing a lot of walking, it's mechanically advantageous. If it's subcutaneous, that makes more sense if we live in a cold environment. And in fact, people like you and I, fair-skinned ancestors from cold environment, tend to store our fat subcutaneously. If you put but it deep males, around the viscera... And males tend to store fat viscerally. Mm -hmm. and, well, but also, uh, if your ancestors came from hotter climates, you tend to store fat more viscerally. And, so, and that makes sense if what you want to do is dump heat. So I haven't actually heard, have you, have you read that? I have read that, but it's not my area of study. So I yeah. will say I've read it in passing, but I'm not going to overcommit to that. I think I may have too, in terms of like the ectomorph, endomorph yeah, kind yeah, of I don't want to overcommit kind of to that statement, but it yeah. did make sense to me. Right. That we would keep our subcutaneous fat thin if we're trying to dump heat and thicker if we're trying to save it. That said, that it, that it makes sense doesn't mean it turns out to be true. So I, that's a good point that you make. So I, I have a lot of ideas about fat and microbiome. And it's certainly, I think it's the it should be the subject of its own uh, podcast. All right. But I will, I will, I think that my basic view on fat, just to, just to give it the briefest of treatments here, is that um, a lot of evidence suggests that fat is an immune organ, and that fat participates in host defense, and that fat may actually help fuel immune cell trapping and killing of microbes that escape from the gut, which is one of the reasons why we see uh, the accumulation of fat around the abdomen particularly when there is a dysbiosis or an unhealthy community of microbes in the gut. So it's a, it's a host defense feature. And that highlights, instead of the idea that microbes are busy directing and helping out our, us, our bodies, and telling us where to put our fat, it really points to a more antagonistic relationship between ourselves and our microbiomes, at least when it comes to obesity. And that's, that's my you know, 10 second treatment of that topic. What you just said is brand new to me. I know zero about it. So let's, let's, uh, let's... All right, maybe we'll do that another time then. Yeah. Unless we split this podcast into two, which is another possibility. Two or four or six parts. Yeah. We'll just go on all day. Well, okay, let's... Should we go there? Uh, I'm open to it. Yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah. All right. So uh, listen, I find fat uh, fascinating. A, a few years ago, um, I published uh, a review article uh, with Melissa Franklin, which I think was the, the previous a podcast to this one, where we talked about um, fat as having a capacity to kill microbes so directly. So free fatty acids actually have a microbial uh, inhibition and, and can actually kill uh, pathogens. Interesting. So, so I've never heard this before. It turns out that omega-3 fatty acids and long-chain unsaturated fatty acids are better at killing microbes than are saturated fats of the same chain length. And when you get down to the really short-chain fatty acids, um, they can be saturated, and they, they also tend, tend to kill uh, microbes. So it made sense to me, I speculated, that perhaps if we were to mobilize fats during an infection, that we would mobilize the fats that have the most antimicrobial properties. 
And so there's, there's some work to suggest that that is true, but that's, a, again, a bit of speculation. But getting back to this host defense function of fat, uh, work by Gallo, uh, he's a uh, dermatologist at UC San Diego, um, he has shown that when, with regard to the skin microbiome, that when you wound the skin, that causes fat cells to proliferate, just, and it also causes a, it attracts immune cells to that site of wounding. And the bacteria that enter into the wounded skin get gobbled up by you know, phagocytes and uh, myeloid um, immune cells, and that preadipocytes, these are the sort of the undifferentiated fat cells, they can also actually gobble up and phagocytose invading bacteria. They can, the, the, the fat cells can also produce antimicrobial peptides. So they're actually actively behaving as immune cells. So it makes sense that when you have invading microbes, you're gonna make more fat cells, and the fat cells will then provide a fuel source for other immune cells and can actually participate in the immune cells, immune defense themselves. How about appendicitis? Think about, well, think about- I wanna uh, pause you for a second to make sure I understand up to this point. Yeah. So let me see if I say this right. It's the, the fatty acid chains are the antimicrobial component of this story. And if they're long, it matters that they be unsaturated. But if they're short, they can be saturated and still be effective. I think that suggests that it's the OH bond at the end of the fatty acid chain that's acting as a free radical to attack the microbe. Is that where... So the mechanism is, and this has to do with you know, fats that are solid at room temperature versus liquid, the very, very short saturated fatty acids. Well, we're never be, room temperature, tend to be we're always body temperature. Liquid. And te uh, fats that are uh, highly unsaturated and have omega-3 bonds, uh, those tend to be liquid More at room liquid. temperature, yeah. right? And then you have the ones in the middle uh, that are solid, uh, things like palmitate and stearate, so long-chain saturated fatty acids. One of the mechanisms whereby fatty acids can inhibit or kill microbes is by destabilizing their cell membranes. So when a very short saturated fatty acid or a very long unsaturated fatty acid enters the, and interacts with the cell membrane of a bacterium, uh, it can, has a detergent effect, can destabilize the membrane, and then when also exposed to antimicrobial peptides and molecules that our immune system produces, can make those uh, bacteria burst or can make them stop growing. So do they insert themselves in the membrane as a, uh, as a, um, uh, what's the word I want to say, polar, non-polar molecule, the way that the, um, uh, the lipophilic and non-lipophilic component of a membrane work right now? Do they act as a giant version, in other words, of one of those subunits of a cell membrane? Uh, great question. I don't think I know that um, you know, physical chemistry well enough to to describe that, but suffice it to say that these these microbes, these molecules do have those effects. Hmm. Um, that, that that may be part of the story uh, to describe how we we tend to mobilize free fatty acids during infection. It could look at this is partly speculative you know, speculation. That's okay. We're we're speculating like crazy <laughs> here, are. Dave. Readers or listeners should be aware that a ton of what we're saying here is us thinking out loud. So be comfortable with that or else go listen to another podcast. A feature of an acute <laughs> stress, like if you're in a car accident, or maybe have some uh, severe psychological stress, or if you get a overwhelming infection, a feature of that is that you're going to mobilize a lot of free fatty acids in your bloodstream. So part of that might be, and this is pure speculation, might be that those free fatty acids participate in immune defense. That's the fatty acid part of it. The other part of the story is that in terms of directing uh, why it is that we tend to deposit fats in various places, 
I'm arguing that the fat in our guts provides a host defense function that actually physically contains infections and microscopically participates in uh, preventing invading microbes from becoming systemic infections. That's what I'm arguing here. So that correlates with something that's been noticed for a long time. It may make sense here. We talked about acute and chronic stress, now I'm going to talk about acute and chronic fat. We know that chronically speaking, people are healthier with low body fat. But we also know that when people are in the ICU, people who start with very little body fat have lower survival rates than people who start That's with a reasonable amount of body fat. That's called the obesity paradox. Yep, we, the obesity paradox. Right, here we are talking about obesity. You may be answering it right now. Yeah, you okay. may be giving us part of the reason why that looks the way it does. So the idea is I should stay skinny as long as I can, but try to get fat right before my crisis. Uh, I think I think that's that's likely so. If I, think I can that, just plan my emergencies, I'll be all right. So with regard to so you don't you don't need to say that fat has a host defense function to make that argument. You can simply say it's stored energy. And, and that's that, what we have in and the past. That, that being in a car accident and then yeah. being admitted to the ICU and intubated and you can't eat, that you're going to draw on some of that stored energy. And that certainly is true too. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that you're also interacting with the with microbial threats and that the fat is providing this host defense role. Uh, it may be beneficial in that way. Could be Possibly. contributing to that effect, and of course, Possibly. one can hide the other. Right. You know, that's that's fascinating. So now, I, thought, I thought you were going to go towards. There's a couple of uh, features that I find fascinating. One is that when we if we get a CAT scan to diagnose appendicitis, one of the ways that we can often diagnose an uh, uh, appendicitis, even without seeing the appendix, by the inflamed fat around it. You see it. inflamed fat around it. You see, you see there's a de- edematous fat. The fat mm-hmm. becomes metabolically active. Uh, it's becoming edematous, and that fat is providing a host defense function. We know this because when the appendix bursts and becomes perforated, the fat plays a very important role in containing that uh, localized abscess. So not all appendicitis, uh, even perforated appendicitis, it forms a sort of macroscopic pseudomembrane. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So fat, and we also see this in Crohn's disease. You see the creeping fat, which anatomists and pathologists have noted for a long time happened in Crohn's disease. The feature of Crohn's disease is that you get a leaky gut. Bacteria escape through the epithelial layer of the intestine, make their way into the seroma and elsewhere, and what is there to meet them? Defensive fat. And that's been shown to be, again, loaded with immune cells, so you get both the immune function, the physical uh, sealing of the leaks in the intestine, and uh, provides fuel for the immune cells that are that are metabolically activated. All those things happen at once. So two questions. Does fat provide a more hospitable environment for macrophages? And by the way, what level should this podcast be at? Should we be defining some of our terms here? So good point. I'm, I expect that most of my listeners have at least some uh, science background. But you're right. We should probably do a better job of defining our terms here. I think it's a bit late to go back and redefine them all now, but let's so try to... So have to have maybe yeah. a glossary at the end. Uh, Sorry about our language. Us. Pardon our French. <laughs> so macrophages yeah. are... Like, do they, do they thrive better in fatty tissue then? They are cells that are part of the innate immune system. So they respond to invading organisms without having, having needing to have any kind of previous experience with an invader. Um, they are phagocytes. They can actually um, take up and we'll say consume, be a, a shorthand way of saying what, uh, how they interact with invading microbes. And of course they produce interleukins and uh, signaling molecules that uh, mobilize uh, different immune functions. So they have, uh, there's some complexity involved uh, with these kinds of cells. But yes, 
they are abundant in the intestine. Macrophages, I'm going to add to that definition. Macrophages are like amoebas. They crawl around in the tissues. They don't live in the blood, they live in the tissues. And they crawl around between the cells just like jaguars in South America crawl around between the trees looking for prey. And when they see a microbe, they pounce on it and eat the thing. And you can actually see videos of this, uh, like on YouTube. You can actually see electron microscopy of this happening. It is cool as all get out to realize what a jungle is inside every tissue of our body. And this... Macrophages. I'm going to name my next <laughs> car. When I design a car like the Tesla, it's going to be called the Macrophage, and it's going to prowl the freeways looking for bugs, Volkswagen bugs. <laughs> and this is why it's good to have an art major background before going to medical school. <laughs> Thank you, Coffee. That's far more uh, <laughs> literary and, and evocative than the way that I said it. Out, out, damned microbe. Right. Uh, so yeah, fat has this immune function. So the fact that when we eat a bad diet, we have these, uh, an invasive microbiome in our guts, and we happen to also accumulate fat in our intestines, around our intestines, and we get that expanding waistline, that I think provides at least a partial explanation for that phenomenon. Slight shift in topic. I am quite interested to learn about the relationship between microbes, uh, uh, microbiomes, pardon me, glycemic index, and chronic low-grade systemic inflammation. What do you know about that triad? Or is it bullshit? I mean, it might be. I don't know. This no, is no, these, these, these are all, all good things. I wonder if we can hold on to that thought just for okay. a second. And we can, so, you, so you're right. The three things happen together. I, I was very much influenced by uh, some work by uh, Patrice Canny, he's a, a microbiologist, uh, published the idea that, um, that microbiomes are responsible for uh, low-grade uh, endotoxemia. So that when we have, again, har bad diet, high fat, low fiber, high carbohydrate, high simple carbohydrate, it encourages the growth of, uh, causes a dysbiosis or a unhealthy community of, of microbes in our guts uh, that then causes leakage of bacterial antigens into the bloodstream thereby causing a low-grade inflammation that induce uh, both insulin uh, resistance, so a pre-diabetic state, and a tendency to accumulate fat uh, as adipose tissue. So that's a, it's, a, it's a simple way of looking at a, a complex system. And I will, you know, that, was, that was very influential. On, uh, his work was very influential to me, um, published this over a decade ago. Um, and since then, has added layers of complexity to it. We know it's not quite so simple. But uh, the idea that um, the diet could impact whether we are obese or not and can impact our metabolism um, all makes sense when we think about its effect on the microbiome. So we've shown this in mice, for instance. You can feed mice simple carbohydrate, high fat. They become fat and essentially diabetic. We can prevent that uh, by making the animal germ-free. You can feed them whatever they want. If they have no, no microbes in their guts, then animals are resistant to becoming obese. And we can also see the same phenomenon if we treat them in the short term with antibiotics. So antibiotics prevent some of the, the, these gut changes and exposure to bacterial antigens. So all those things are, are true. So what this tells us, you know, with regard to, um, so I've, I've made the argument though that this response in terms of the obesity, it's not pure pathology. Part of it is host defense, and there's trade-offs involved in that. And if, again, if you're exposed to host defense for a long time, it can harm you. We know this is true. Having a, a huge 
uh, belt and an expanded waistline is accompanied by increased risk for hypertension, stroke, diabetes, heart attacks. So it's not all good, but it may, may actually have some, some benefit in the short term. Uh, so with regard to the insulin resistance part of it, the high blood sugar, we, we talked about that being a stress, but part of it really is a change in uh, resource allocation. Um, the blood sugar that's, that's in, floating around in your bloodstream is no longer available to muscles, so you're less apt to use up that energy as locomotion or you know, building up muscle strength, and is more available to other tissues. Some of the tissues that, uh, that, that don't require insulin to bring up glucose, they include your brain, so your brain doesn't, doesn't need insulin to, to take up energy. But for this conversation, it's important to notice that the intestinal epithelium also doesn't require insulin, and neither do, do these circulating and tissue immune cells like our macrophages. They don't require so the it. the brain does not require insulin, and neither does the gut epithelium, right. and neither do the macrophages. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So I've learned a little bit. I'm learning a lot today, actually. Thank you. Uh, so there's a, there's a host defense function of impaired glucose metabolism. We'd say impaired. That implies its pathology, but we're suggesting here that there may be adaptation. There may be some adaptive benefit to it. And apparently there is some uh, credibility to the idea that our microbiomes are contributing to systemic chronic low-grade inflammation. Yeah. That's important because that process is pretty strongly associated with... Now, we always talk about cardiovascular disease. I should say the reason I, on a personal level, like in my own life, the reason I care about things like uh, maintaining my cardiovascular system is that that's my cerebrovascular system, okay? It's not that I'm trying to live to be 120. It's that I want my body to go before my brain does. So everything that you've ever heard about taking care of your heart and your blood pressure and that is the same stuff to take care of your brain. And in fact, I was um, recently at a TED Talk and wound up sitting next to the woman who is the director of our Alzheimer's Research Institute here. Do you happen to know her name? I don't. Um, but she was telling me that Initially, Alzheimer's was thought to be a cerebrovascular disease. People moved away from it because of things like amyloid plaques, which are proteins that accumulate in the damaged neurons. Apparently, they're coming back all the way around to it again and thinking that it is a chronic low perfusion state in watershed areas of the brain. That is to say that it actually is a vascular disease of the brain. But others have argued that the, the, some of the proteins that one finds in, in Alzheimer's plaques, that they share some... Uh, functionality with these antimicrobial peptides, and it suggests that there could be an infectious component to Alzheimer's disease. In Wouldn't fact, surprise me a bit. Uh, I it's mean, been viruses can cause cancers, for example. Right, and and there's at least a few signals pointing in the direction that the, the microbiome may be involved in that too. I hate to harp on that so well, much. Well, I right? don't know that it has to be an either yeah. or question. Right. It it may well be some sort of synergy, or there may be more than one path to Alzheimer's. But uh, if well, it certainly is true that some kinds of dementia can be delayed or even prevented by maintaining cerebrovascular status, which is exactly the same as maintaining cardiovascular health. Um, whether or not Alzheimer's itself is amenable to that, I, would, I wouldn't be in a position to say with certainty, but she was certainly pushing me in that direction. Yeah. Sure. Let's, uh, maybe we should wrap this up by talking about socioeconomic status. All right. Because we know that's a huge correlative of health and outcomes. And in this recent election, it seemed to predict voting behavior, depending on one's demographic. And it, 
maybe uh, relevant to this discussion of stress. So imagine a triangle then. Three of the points would be socioeconomic status, diet, and stress. However, this triangle is going to have more than three points on it, I think, by the time we're done. So my triangle became a polygon. What would, might you add to that? In terms of outcomes? Well, yeah. I mean, so being stressed causes us to eat inappropriately very often. Lots of people react that way. Yeah, on the other hand, stress eating poor, is a very real phenomenon. A healthy diet is, is unfortunately, is actually more expensive than a uh, unhealthy diet. Now, I've looked at my own diet, and I've looked at, I've tried various ways when I'm at the grocery store to make this comparison. You can imagine that if you eat a healthy diet, part of that is you eat less total food than most Americans do. Does that make up the difference in cost? And the answer is no, it does not. It is actually more expensive to eat well than to eat poorly. In this country, there's an interesting history to processed foods. At the very beginning, at the time of the revolution and on up into like Davy Crockett days and stuff, the East Coast was producing vast amounts of corn. Tons and tons of corn. It was a great place to grow corn. So they were shipping it west to sell it. But the corn was spoiling on the trip west. What they needed was to process it into a form that would travel well. But they hadn't invented cornflakes yet. So instead, they turned it into whiskey and other alcoholic beverages. So alcohol, alcoholic drinks, became a big part of the economy of America. I've never thought... It was thought... actually, to some degree, unpatriotic not to drink alcohol. If you look at the amounts of alcohol that wow. were drunk at the Constitutional Convention, they are staggering. And there's actually, you can look this up online, the alcohol from the Constitutional Convention. And the per capita, like you wonder how their livers lasted a week, right? Yeah. Now, I've never thought of booze as being a processed food. Isn't like, that interesting, yeah. right? And so later on, and of course it was highly profitable as well, and would store forever. You can buy a bottle of whiskey and, you know, 12-year-old scotch, great, that's the good stuff. Give me that one, right? Right. 12-year-old corn, not so much. In the same way, um, processed foods like cornflakes, which came about yeah, around the time of the Civil War, graham crackers, things like that, you can buy those and they can sit on yourself for a few weeks. You know, not indefinitely, but a few weeks. Canned foods? There are canned foods that have been opened and found to be edible after 50 years. But when we process food and make it so that it's more shelf durable, we can ship it without refrigeration, we can store it for long periods of time, and those are big contributors to the cost of food. So food gets a lot, lot, lot cheaper. Plus, I can store it up against the winter and so on. Right. Problem? That stuff sucks the nutrients right out. If you're talking about vitamins and flavonoids, minerals are okay. Calories are okay. You can preserve the calories. But the vitamins and the flavonoids and the antioxidants and all that stuff, gone. And so this is what we mean when we talk about so-called empty calories. Oh, they're not empty. You're and getting fuel. You're and, burning and you fuel. know that uh, I have argued that empty calories are uh, full of conflict. So in other words, empty calories help fuel a dysbiosis, a harmful gut. And not, not just me, uh, my, my co-authors, Athena Actippus and... Uh, Helen I have seen that from multiple uh, sources and multiple different lines of research seem to support that very same thing. So, so it's not just the yeah. absence of critical micronutrients, it's its capacity to actually generate conflict in your guts. It's interesting that you use the word conflict. Say a little more about that. Well, I, again, I don't, I don't want to steal the thunder of uh, potentially future podcasts here. You need to come back. We'll gonna, talk about conflict to, in our gut. I think we'll need to discuss that one uh, in, with some, some greater detail. Um, but I think to your point, though, uh, we live here in the, in the American Southwest. 
uh, with you know, fairly large populations of Native Americans and what they experienced uh, during the post-colonial period and during the early period of the Americas is that we gave them quote-unquote commodity foods that are exactly the foods that you're describing. The reason why Indian fry bread is a thing uh, has, to, has to do with this, this history of uh, again putting or forcing Native American populations onto reservations, feeding them uh, these foods that uh, more or less made them dependent on, on outposts uh, banned by the U.S. Army that had you know, political, achieved political goals for uh, the, the, the territories at the time, uh, but also subjugated the Native American populations and gave them a, a legacy of eating very unhealthy foods. You know, yet another contributor to the relationship between socioeconomic status and a poor diet is that there are certain characteristic patterns of brain activity in a functional MRI. You can look and say, oh, that person is an addict who is looking at cocaine. As it turns out, you get a similar pattern of lighting up when people look at fast food. Certain combinations of fat, sugar, and salt light up our brains in patterns analogous to addiction to cocaine or heroin. As intensely, I don't think so for most of us, but I've we've certainly that, known lots of people who eat themselves to death. Right, I've craved that breakfast burrito many times, and uh, it, has the, it has the effect of crack on me. Yeah, there you go. See, that is literally true, which is a kind of shocking thing to find out. I think it has some socio-political implications, yeah. but that was not the time we're going to address those. Right. <laughs> but, you know, with regard to socioeconomic status, I think that there is a story that involves you know, chronic exposure to stress, uh, its effect on, on the immune system, its effect on these trade-offs that we've described in terms of how energy and other resources are allocated in our bodies, how we allocate resources to maintenance functions that uh, may be decreased uh, for lower socioeconomic groups um, and may manifest as, as low-grade inflammation. And this may be part of the explanation for why some of these socioeconomic groups have increased health burdens it may also explain their voting behavior, to, to bring it all back into one, one package here. And which in turn helps to keep them poor. It becomes a vicious cycle. These, these hits that they take to their cognitive and physiologic health because okay. of the chronic stress and the chronically poor diet make it harder for them to escape their circumstances. Yeah. So we say this as, as members of a relative, we're both you know, physicians, um, blessed by relatively high socioeconomic status. Um, and that you know, it's it's one thing that I, I do notice, because I'm interested in the effect of uh, stress and circadian stress. So the fact that we work night shifts overnight. It's known that um, if you work these crazy hours, that that causes bad eating behavior and predisposes to obesity, hypertension, a whole bunch of different diseases. But if you look at the the doctors, at least in our group, many of us physicians, even the night shift workers, are pretty skinny. It's I'm the, not sure that ER docs. We're just there weird. seems to be something we're, about different there's, there's about some, the ER There's some specialty. aberrancy yeah. going on among us. At least here at UNM, half of them are all rock climbers. And yeah, marathon like runners, etc. Yeah. So we 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 maybe study a group of outliers, but this is a, yeah. a, a I'm actually studying my our colleagues, and the effect of night shift work on, on our bodies it may not be as bad as we think. Well, uh, the people who coined the terms. Um, Lark and uh, Night Owl. Mm -hmm. For people whose metabolism is I'm up all night and I like to sleep until noon, 
or people whose metabolism mine is, I, I would get up, if I didn't have other people to worry about, mm -hmm. I'd get up at 3 and work till 11. That would be my prime time. Yeah, me too, probably. Yeah. I'm definitely more of a Three in the owl. morning, I mean. No, yeah. I, for oh, me, it would be 3 in the morning until, until noon. I'd wake up 3 in the yeah. afternoon. So we'd, we'd be opposite. Yeah. Now, but actually, that's, overall. That's, so, listen, socioeconomic stress, in terms of our group here, may buffer some of these stresses and may protect us yeah, from, to a degree. from some of the harms that we'd otherwise be exposed to. Yeah. But what about the larks and the owls? Oh, well, it turns out that um, the night owls are generally not as well rested as the larks. That the people who have, uh, whose who's innate nature is to be night people, mm -hmm. it's not exactly equivalent. It's not the mirror image of day people. They actually pay a price for that. I think that you're right. I, I happen to be more of an owl uh, than a lark. And I think that the evidence when we've looked at separating out those two, two uh, groups of people is that the owls tend to suffer more long-term health uh, bad outcomes than do the larks. You know, as a reminder that averages are not individuals, in this conversation, Joe is the night owl, and he's also the much higher performer between the two of us. I'm the lark, and uh, I'm a school teacher, so there you are. Uh, you're selling yourself short, coffee. Like I said, he's uh, the smartest guy in the department, uh, does amazing work. Um, and I think on that note, we may uh, bring this uh, podcast to a close. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, coffee.